Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, what's the first word that comes to your mind when you think of heaven? Heaven. The first word that comes to my mind when I think of heaven is shrimp. Shrimp. But not this kind of shrimp. The kind of shrimp I'm thinking of is called the mantis shrimp, and it's not what you typically think of as shrimpy. It's actually not technically a shrimp at all. It's a member of the stomatopod family. It's a distant relative of shrimp and crab and lobster. And I have two favorite things about the mantis shrimp. First, it has these two appendages on the front of its body called dactyl clubs. And they are like giant fists that would put Mike Tyson to shame. When attacking something, these clubs can spring forth from the mantis shrimp's body, accelerating faster than a 22 caliber bullet. In less than three thousandths of a second, they can strike their prey with up to 1,500 newtons of force. Now, to put that in perspective, if you or I could accelerate our arm at even a tenth of that speed, we could throw a baseball into orbit, all right? Their limbs move so quickly that the water around them heats up to several thousand degrees Kelvin, approaching the temperature on the surface of the sun. This process is known as supercavitation, and each time the mantis shrimp does this, it literally scares the water around it so badly that it produces bubbles out of nothing. And these bubbles are called cavitation bubbles, and when they collapse, it produces an undersea shock wave that's so powerful that the mantis shrimp's prey often dies even when it misses its target. Needless to say, they're not put in aquariums with other animals, because they don't play nice. They actually aren't often put in aquariums at all because they are known to break right through the very glass that holds them captive. This is all true. But that's my second favorite thing about the mantis shrimp. My first favorite thing is its eyes. See, our eyes, if you remember back to your studies, have rods and cones. Rods are what allow us to see light and motion, and cones allow us to see color. Dogs have two color cones, and we humans have three. Uh, And up on the screen, you'll see a side-by-side comparison of uh, the spectrum of color that we see compared to that of uh, which dogs see, our, our rainbow. And the third color cone, happens to be the red color cone, makes a lot of difference when it's added. Each time a color cone is added, the spectrum of color perception grows exponentially. And so the world that we see is amazingly more colorful than the world uh, that dogs see. So dogs have two color cones. We have three, but scientists have discovered there are other animals who have more than us. Butterflies have five color cones. But as usual, the mantis shrimp is not to be outdone. The mantis shrimp has not five. Not 10, but 16 color cones. It has more color cones than any other known creature. And that means that its eyes have the ability to see the same world that you and I see, except they see a world that is vastly more colorful, and they have the ability to see entire dimensions of color that our eyes or our brains are not capable of comprehending. So you may be wondering, what do mantis shrimp have to do with our passage for today, which is the last two chapters of the Bible? Uh, We are in a series called Home, with the subtitle, What Our Hearts Long For. And today is the final installment, and we're going to be talking about the very last act of history, when we see Jesus face to face and everything is made new. 
Well, Revelation chapters 21 and 22 are written by a man named John who was given a vision of what this new heaven and new earth would look like in the coming age when Jesus returns. Uh, But in the last couple chapters of the Bible, he uses language like this. The heavenly city has a brilliance like that of a very precious jewel, like Casper, clear as crystal. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the 12 gates of the city were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. And we read things like that and we're left wondering, how in the world do I picture something like that? A lot of the imagery in the book of Revelation is drawn from the Old Testament. If you walk into a movie and only catch the last five minutes, you're going to be very confused, more than likely. You're not going to know who the characters are in front of you, the backstory, the significance of maybe what they're wearing or the references that they're making. And the same is true if we pick up the book of Revelation without an understanding of how the entire rest of the Bible leads up to it. But if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that even if you have a good understanding of it, when you try to picture things like a city with a glowing brilliance that doesn't need the light of sun, 12 foundations and giant pearls for gates, it becomes clear that the world that John is trying to describe is a 16 color cone world and he's trying to describe it from a three color cone perspective. See, the glory of what we're gonna experience in the new heaven and the new earth is simply beyond the ability of human language to describe and so there is no way for us to say here is exactly what heaven will be like. Nevertheless, what we read about heaven in the last couple chapters of the Bible is true. It's worthy of our attention. And so we're going to talk about three things that God drives home in the last two chapters of the Bible. And the first thing is a promise, a promise. And here is where we're going to spend the majority of our time. Chapter 21 begins with these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, says John. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost. From the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. If you're tracking along in your Bible, skip down to the beginning of chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood a tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, 
For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is good news around here. We like to thank God for speaking to us through his word, and so let's do that now. This is the word of the Lord. If you are taking notes, or maybe you like a sermon in a sentence, here are, uh, here's the big idea of the sermon in four words. Heaven is home coming. Heaven is home coming. And we're going to start today by uh, doing a brief overview of the theme of God's home and our home in the story of Scripture. And uh, this could be said to be representative of really the entire story of Scripture in summary. And I'm a visual processor, and I uh, particularly like it when theology can be done on a napkin. And so if you are one of those types, uh, I'm going to summarize the entire story of Scripture using four Venn diagrams, okay? And I'm going to use the black marker to symbolize God's space or God's home and the red marker for our space or our home. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth— and he dwelled there. He created a physical world order with physical creatures, including you and me, made in his image, and he chose that to be his dwelling place. This is super important because God could have done anything else, and he chose to make his home with us. So the entire story of Scripture starts with not separateness from God, but togetherness with God. All right? But of course, if you know the story, it doesn't take long for things to begin to go haywire. Adam and Eve set themselves up as mini rulers over their own personal kingdom, choosing to go their way instead of God's way. And as a result, there's a separation of the spaces. They're kicked out of home, kicked out of the garden, become homeless. This is catastrophic to the human experience. There's alienation in several ways. First, there's alienation from themselves. Adam and Eve sewing together fig leaves to cover up their own nakedness because of all, all of a sudden they were ashamed of who they were. They experienced alienation from God. When God came in the garden, they heard him and, and hid themselves away. The God that they were once close to, they were now separate from. They experienced alienation from each other. When God said, what happened? <laughs> Adam said, uh, well, the woman that you gave me, right? Like he starts pointing the finger right away. And Eve does the same thing, pointing the finger to the serpent. Separation from others. And lastly, separation from nature. God had said, fill the earth and subdue it. And all of a sudden, the family, which was supposed to be a place of joy, at the center of it was pain and work, human flourishing, all of a sudden was thorny. The reason that you and I can, can imagine a world that is healthy and good and right, but our experience is so far from it, is because of this. The obstacles for us to return to this are simply too much for us to overcome. But obstacles that are too hard for us are not too hard for God. Amen? So God set out on a mission to bring his home and our home back together. Togetherness is God's agenda. And so this happened in stages. The first stage in the Old Testament was what is known as a tabernacle at first, a temporary tent dwelling, and later a permanent temple. And in this temple was a room called the Holy of Holies, and God said, I will dwell there. My very presence will be there. And once a year, one person, the high priest, was allowed in to commune with God. It's a small overlap, but an overlap nonetheless. And this high priest was allowed in only after going through a rigorous cleansing process to purify himself from sin so that he could commune with a holy God and represent Israel. The problem with this animal sacrificial system, though, which cleansed the priest, was it was 
ineffective. It lacked the ability to go deep into the human heart to solve the true problem of human sin. Hence, it needed to be repeated over and over and over again. And it was insufficient in scope because you had this massive swath of humanity who didn't participate in the atoning work of the sacrificial system. So God did the only thing that he could do to truly meet our deepest need and solve our deepest problem. And that was to come himself. So that very first Christmas, Jesus was born and God became a baby. The place where heaven and earth overlapped all of a sudden was no longer a building, but a child. And when Jesus began his earthly ministry, John the Baptist looked at him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And indeed, when Jesus hung there on the cross, the blood of the Lamb of God was slain. And that blood did what no animal blood could ever do, which was to truly purify human heart. And it was an invitation, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. Jesus set the stage for the very last act of human history when God would make his dwelling with us again. And our question for us today is, what does this look like? You and me lie between the ascension of Jesus and the return of Jesus. And our question today is, what does that look like? Before we talk about what heaven will look like, it's probably helpful to talk about what heaven will not look like because there's a lot of misconception out there. And so I want to talk about two things that tend to creep into our Christian theology that really have no place. The first one I'm calling absorption. Absorption. The idea here is that when you die, your soul kind of goes back, blends back into the essence of creation, like a drop falling into a vast ocean. And the belief has some links to some forms of Buddhism or pantheism. Sometimes it takes an explicit form. If you've seen the movie Avatar, when a person dies, their soul becomes part of the tree of souls. And divinity is depicted as a sort of energy that inhabits everything. It allows the Navi people to all remain connected. But most often, in our culture at least, this takes a more subtle form of the idea of kind of returning to nature, as it were. So people will insist on being cremated, for example, and having their ashes spread in a location that has particular significance or maybe spiritual meaning for them. The idea is that they'll sort of dwell there permanently. There's even a company called Bios who makes a biodegradable urn, and all you do is add your ashes. There's tree seed in it, and you bury it in the ground, and the idea is they promise that you will live on in the form of a tree. There's even auxiliary products that you can buy so that you can grow your loved ones indoors, keep them nice and close. Absorption. The second idea I'm calling evaporation, and this has ties to Gnosticism. If you know uh, Gnostic thought, Gnosticism is a body of thought that says that the physical body is sort of a shell that will be freed from one day. That our true form is really spirit, and the goal is that we would be set free from the shackles of physicality. And Gnosticism creeps into our Christianity in many ways, but a lot of times in songs. Uh, Songs like I'll Fly Away, which has these lyrics. Some bright morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. To that home on God's celestial shore, I'll fly away. I'll fly away, oh glory, and I'll fly away in the morning when I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. When the shadows of this life have gone, I'll fly away like a bird 
from these prison walls, I'll fly away. Or maybe you've heard the song, This World is Not My Home, which goes like this. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Both of these songs, which you may have heard or even sung in the context of a church, give the distinct impression that we are just passing through this physical world, and the goal of the Christian life is to fly away from our bodies and all the rest of physical existence and find ourselves in some spiritual space where nothing physical will hold us captive anymore. But this simply is not the depiction of what heaven will be like in Scripture. My guess is that most of the imagery about heaven being a bodiless, spiritual, floating space uh, comes from a confusion between what theologians call the intermediate state and the final state of things, okay? The intermediate state deals with the question, what happens to a Christ follower when they die, but that death happens before the return of Jesus, if you die right now? What's your experience like? The final state deals with the question of this. What will the true end state of all people be when Jesus returns and makes all things new? Now, we don't know much about the final state or the intermediate state except to say that it includes intimate presence, intimate uh, presence with God, right? We get uh, this idea from passages like when Paul says to be uh, at home in the body means to be we're away from the Lord, Or when Jesus looks at the thief on the cross next to him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. But in both cases, they are talking about the experience of a person who dies before the return of Christ. Neither Paul or Jesus are talking about the final state of things. And remember how God has operated throughout all of Scripture, right? He took joy in creating a physical world out of nothing. He didn't have to, but he did it that way. And he filled it with all kinds of physical creatures. When he created Adam and Eve, he didn't wave a wand and make spirits who would happen to later dwell in bodies. Adam was made from physical dirt and Eve from physical rib. And later he breathed spirit into them. So it could be said that the biblical portrait of humans is not that we are embodied souls, but rather that we are ensouled bodies. Then God gave what is known as the cultural mandate to Adam and Eve to fill the earth with physical descendants. If you need a reminder, making babies is a very physical thing. And to work the ground, to subdue creation, to shape the created order. And then, of course, the very center of the Christian faith, the person and work of Jesus, all of that hinges on physicality, the incarnation, the bloody cross, the bodily resurrection. And think about this for a second. When Jesus became a human, he didn't just take on a body for the 33 years of messy saving work, only to shed his body and float back up to heaven. When Jesus rose from the dead, he rose physically. He walked around and he showed people the holes in his hands and his feet. He ate with his disciples, right? This isn't Jesus, the friendly ghost, eating, where it just drops through his body and onto the ground. He physically ate and digested. And when he ascended, he ascended in a physical body. And so you see, when God became a human with a physical body, it was a permanent change to God himself. God became a human and stayed that way. So it's not an understatement to say that physicality is actually part of who God is. 
So it's ironic then that what often gets taught or maybe caught when we think about heaven looks a lot more like the intermediate state, which happens to be a transitional, temporary state, rather than the final state, which has physicality at the very center. When you see that throughout all of Scripture, God's goal is not to whisk us away from earth to some spiritual realm, but rather to come be here with us and to restore this order, all of a sudden the last couple chapters of the Bible make so much more sense. So we've talked about what heaven will not be, but what will heaven be like? In short, as I said, heaven is a homecoming. Heaven gives us the home that each one of us desperately longs for. But it's not a home somewhere in the sky. It's coming here. And while it's most likely going to be a 16-color cone world that we will not be able to comprehend until we experience it firsthand, we do have promises to hold on to about what awaits us in the new created order. So I'm going to highlight four promises from our passage today. First, heaven will be a reversal. A reversal. We read, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away and no longer will there be any curse. In this new world order, there'll be no crying, no suffering, no pain, no death, no curse. Maybe, friend, you sit here today and you find that you are at odds with yourself. Maybe you feel at odds with your own body. Maybe you're years into an eating disorder and it's been a battle and you have seen little to no progress. Maybe you wake up every morning with a chronic pain. You carry it throughout each day and it's with you when your head hits the pillow at night and it is exhausting. Maybe a doctor has told you that a disease has made its residence in your body and the prospects look grim. Maybe you feel at odds with your own desires, knowing that you are often drawn to things that bring not life, but destruction to you and those you love. Maybe life has just consistently frustrated you. You see, just as one area of your life is turning around, another area takes a nosedive, and you feel like you're back at square one. He will wipe every tear from your eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things will have passed away. Second, heaven will bring a renewal. Renewal. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing, the healing of the nations. It's not just a reversal of the curse so that there'll be no more pain. Renewal is about more than the absence of pain. Renewal is about making everything new again. One of my favorite promises in this passage is that there will not even be mourning, which is the pain that plagues us long after a trauma has actually happened. Reversal means that there'll be no more war. Renewal means that there'll be no more PTSD. Reversal means that there will be no more wounds. Renewal means that there will be no more scars. Reversal means that no more pain will be inflicted. Renewal means that no more pain will be remembered. 
He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Third, heaven will be relational. Relational. I heard a loud voice, John says, from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. You see, sometimes we imagine heaven as being this great place because of what will be there and we forget that heaven is all about who will be there. Friends, don't fall into the trap of imagining heaven without God. There simply is no such thing. Heaven will be a place of goodness because the author of goodness will be there. Heaven will be a place of healing because the great healer himself will be there. So the God about whom you've wondered, does he even care about my pain? He himself will be the one to wipe every tear from your eyes. The God who has pursued you in all of your wandering for satisfaction and rest will himself give to you from the spring of the water of life. And the God that you've so badly wanted to be near you, you will finally see him face to face. Lastly, heaven will include reigning. Reigning. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of a sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they, you and me, will reign forever and ever. The word reign here is a verb, right? It's action-oriented. Heaven will be a place of rest, but not retirement. The cultural mandate originally given to Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it will be continued. The project of cultivating and drawing potential out of creation will continue on into eternity. As people made in the image of God, we will forever create, shape, and reign, but this time there will be no more thorns, no more frustration. We will do that in step with God as it was always meant to be. Reversal, renewal, relational, reigning. These are the things that make up the promise of heaven. My whole world turned upside down on February 13th of this year. I sat in a neurology office in Chicago with my wife Kasia by my side as we awaited the results of a brain MRI done on our younger son, Elon, who was born in October of 2017. It all started back when Elon was first born. He was healthy by all accounts, with one exception, and that was that he failed his in-hospital hearing test. And we'd initially thought it was just a fluke in the test or maybe there was some fluid buildup that would just go away. But eventually, Elon began missing some more significant milestones around three months of age. He wasn't making eye contact with us. He didn't seem to respond to our voices. He wouldn't even track objects as they would cross his field of vision. He would kind of look past things. And then at three months old, at his checkup, the pediatrician noticed that the primary soft spot on his skull had closed up, and so she ordered an MRI, and soon the results were ready, and so we headed into Chicago. We sat in front of her neurologist as she opened her computer and peeled through image after image of Elon's brain scan. And I don't know much about what the brain should look like, but it was clear from the very start that things were very wrong. Elon's brain had been severely underformed. It had always been that way. 
And after about 45 minutes of explaining, the doctor turned off the computer and she said, do you guys have any questions for me? And even after 45 minutes, some of my biggest questions were still not answered. And, and so I said the first thing that I thought of, I said, doctor, will my son ever see my face? And she looked back and forth from my wife and I and she then said, probably not. And so I, as that hit me, I started asking more questions. I said, well, well, what will his uh, quality of life be? Will he be able to interact with us? What will his cognitive abilities be? What does Elon's future look like? She paused, and she finally said, I don't know. I've heard those three words a lot in the months since that appointment. Elon was diagnosed with epilepsy and seizures have been a regular part of his life. Will it always be that way? I don't know. He's currently on three different seizure medications. How long will those continue to work? We don't know. A series of seizures back in March compromised his ability to swallow. And so we had to have a surgery to put a, a tube into his stomach. And that's the tube by which he eats. And I wonder, will he always have that? Will he ever be able to swallow again or will he always be fed through a tube? I don't know. Elon has never laughed. Will he ever experience laughter? I don't know. Will he be able to walk or talk? Will he be able to communicate with us? Will he be able to experience beauty in this world? These are all questions I don't have answers to. Even the best minds of our age, even the best medicine has been able to offer us very little by way of promises for Elan's future. But God is able to promise us something that medicine cannot. Amen? And so my hope for Elan is not limited to what science can do for him or how he might improve in the coming years. My hope for Elon is in the cosmic renewal that Jesus will usher in when he returns and makes all things new. Elon may not be able to mentally conceive of who God is in this life, but one day soon God will come here and he will dwell with Elon and Elon will know him. There have been a lot of tears in Elon's short life, but one day soon, God will come here and he will lean in and he will wipe every tear from Elon's eyes. And Elon will never experience pain or suffering or crying again. Every day is a battle against things that threaten Elon's very life. But soon is coming a day where there will be no more fear of death for Elon. Because of Elon's brain, he has never seen another person's face. But someday soon, Elon's eyes will be opened and he will see the very face of God. This is the promise that we cling to. That's the promise of our passage. But our passage also contains a warning. A warning. Words of love often include words of warning. 
Warnings don't come from people who are enemies who wish you ill. Warnings come from people who see someone they love in danger. And friends, God loves you. And I love you. So here's the warning. Chapter 21 says, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Nothing impure will ever enter the city, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. If you sit here today as somebody who uh, is not a follower of Jesus, you may have heard somebody say Christianity is really all about loving people with no agenda. And I want to tell you that's just plain wrong. Any Christian who says that has severely misunderstood Jesus and the great commission to relentlessly proclaim the good news that his life, death, and resurrection has flung open the door to the family of God. If you get to know me, I will love you, but it will absolutely be with an agenda. My agenda is to see you come home. My agenda is to see you in the family of God. So I must tell you about what I know to be true. Imagine if I one day discovered that I have terminal cancer, stage four, and I go to my doctor and I say, I've discovered that I have cancer. My doctor says, well, I've known for some, some time that you've had cancer. But my personal philosophy is to love you without an agenda, so I didn't want to bring it up. Would that be a loving doctor? Love often comes with an agenda, an agenda that looks like advocacy. And advocacy for us, friends, started in the very heart of God. God is for you. God is for you. He wants forgiveness, freedom, and new life for you. But listen, to experience forgiveness, we have to do the uncomfortable work about talking about sin. And to experience freedom, we have to do the uncomfortable work about talking about what holds us in bondage. To experience about the new life that lies ahead, we have to do the uncomfortable work about what, what it looks like to leave behind the old way of life. At the heart of love is advocacy, but advocacy can be uncomfortable. As I drove away from the hospital on February 13th of this year, I had my wife, Kasia, and my son, Elin, in the car, and I felt like the weight of the world was on my shoulders, like a bomb had just been dropped on us. I'm driving through this, the streets of one of the most beautiful cities in the world, Chicago, with these wonderful buildings. I'm watching people interact and laugh and have fun and, and, and participate in all kinds of forms of entertainment and, and just the opulent wealth of Chicago. And I, and I couldn't help but think, Elon may never experience any of this. And I thought, Elon will never be normal. And, th and then I heard, I heard from God in a way that I can say has only happened a few times in my life. And it was these words. Normal is not the goal. Normal has never been the goal. Jesus says that normal is hellbound. He says, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. I want Elin and our family to have a story that goes against the grain. I want an abnormal story. Now, don't get me wrong. I want health for my son, Elin. 
But what I want more than his physical health here and now is I want my whole family to stand before God one day as he leans in to each of us and said, child, you are made new. But that's the narrow way. God forbid that our family has a normal story. I will fight like crazy, though, for our family to have a faithful story. And I pray for each person listening right now that your story would not be marked by normalcy, but by faithfulness. And that you would heed the warning given in love and give Jesus the rightful place that he deserves in your life. The place of king. Before we end, there's one final element of this passage. It's an invitation. It's an invitation. God's words, final words in the Bible are not a depiction of heaven or even a warning of hell. God's final words are words of invitation. So listen. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. This invitation on the final page of Scripture is one that goes out through the church and to the world. Through God's people to the world. At the beginning of our time together, we traced this story of Scripture, this arc This narrative that started with God's space and our space as one, this separation that occurred because of you and me and God's advocacy for togetherness that began with a tabernacle. And then the very person of Jesus, God himself, dwelling among us. And one day, he will bring restoration to all things. But there's a question. There's a gap in our chart here. Jesus ascended and left us. And there's no temple And we're awaiting this day. So where is the space now where heaven and earth overlap? The answer, friends, is you. You are the temple of God. We are the temple of God. If you are somebody who is following Jesus, you've trusted in Christ, God has indwelled you by his Holy Spirit. Which means this. Wherever you go, God goes. You bring Jesus with you wherever you go. And when people interacting, interact with you, they are interacting with God himself. God's invitation is through the church. He has chosen us to be his strategy for completing his mission to reconcile the world to himself. The mission of this community, friends, is the inclusion of those who are not yet in it. And those of you who are in the room who, uh, who maybe have not been following Jesus, God's invitation is for you. For you. How is it that you can be assured that your name would be written in the Lamb's book of life? Those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. To have eternal, an eternal home with God, you must be victorious. But God, in his grace, he does not stand back with arms folded, waiting for you to muster enough strength for a victory. Earning a victory for ourselves is not something that any one of us can do. So instead of waiting for us to come up, God came down. Grace is the theme that permeates all of Scripture. Grace is God come down 
to us. And this is what separates Jesus from every other religion out there. So what does God require of you, friend? He says, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Heaven is not for the worthy, but for the thirsty. So are you thirsty? At the end of 2018, as you stand on the brink of a new year, are you thirsty? Then come. Christ has won the victory on your behalf, but you must trust in him. To refuse Jesus is to refuse the only one who can cure what ails you most. So consider yourself invited. Don't let 2018 finish without bending the knee to Jesus, bowing before him, the one who bowed himself in death for you so that you might have an eternal hope, an eternal home. We're going to sing one final song. It's called Absent from Flesh. And it has these words. Absent from flesh, but clothed by the Lord in a body that will not die. New heaven and earth where Jesus reigns. Hail to the King, we cry. We have a great hope of a body that will be imperishable and incorruptible. It is a hope that will be incredible. Before we sing, let's pray. God, we thank you for your promises that you are indeed faithful and true. You have demonstrated yourself as trustworthy. God, we thank you for warnings that are given in love, that you tell us what lies ahead if we don't trust in the one whose agenda is togetherness. Would we heed those warnings, God? And God, thank you for the privilege of being on mission with you, God, to be the bearers of good news, ones who welcome the thirsty, the wanderer into the family of God, the ones who can offer a home. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.